Broadcasting live from the Zimmer Communications World Headquarters. This is Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Get ready, pal. Here's your host, Randy Tobler. 708, as we continue to watch the weather, it's good. I mean, this is the last bad, bad day. So if you can make it through this, tomorrow we're going to inch up into some positive numbers, we hope, here in mid-Missouri. And then after that, uh, get a respite for a week or so. I'm Randy Tobler, along with Stephanie Bell. Good morning. Who's like a kid in a candy shop with the Iowa caucuses afoot. I mean, she's just so excited. I love election days. Anything to do with elections is John Marsh, exciting. Are, John Marsh, are you as excited? No, I'm a guy. I think just from talking in house this morning with our coworkers, they're like, "What do you mean Missouri doesn't have a presidential primary?" <laughs> yeah. Music <No>. station people, <laughs> and then uh, producer Hannah over there. We were talking about your hopes that it's at least a race, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. curious. I I mean, I think that Trump is going to come out on top, but I'm curious to see what the margin is between first and second place. Because I have a feeling it's going to be closer than the polls are saying they will be. Yeah, did, you, did you see someone tweeted out this weekend that there was an event somewhere in Iowa and somebody came up and, you know, said, I've got a gift for DeSantis or whatever. And they handed him a participation trophy. Ooh, <laughs> snowflake trophy. I did see that. And Brian We're Housewood joined us as well. It's that time of the uh, show and of the week when we talk with Scott Fawn, of course, publisher of the Missouri Times and host of This Week in Missouri Politics. And and uh, Scott, we should talk about caucus versus presidential preference primary in Missouri. It changes this year. Well, I more think a, a caucus is like an electric vehicle, and a primary is like an F one fifty, like I drive that doesn't freeze up. Oh, okay. Well, you Do drive it every time. <laughs> you drive and a gas. Added bonus: uh, I put so much carbon in the atmosphere. Yeah. Whoever's fault this freezing weather is, it is not my fault. So yours is a gasoline, not a diesel powered truck. It's gasoline. It is it is specifically engineered by Ford yeah. to put as much carbon in the atmosphere yeah. as physically possible. There you go. Hoping that someday global warming will kick in and it'll actually get above zero. <laughs> yeah. Well, real real ranchers in mid Missouri drive diesels, don't you know, Scott? But that's okay. Well, that we'll, is true. We'll that let you true. get along with your, uh, you know. Uh, okay, we're having a good oh, man not, not a man powertrain talk here on uh, Wake Up Mid Missouri. Hey, let's uh, let's pivot to uh, the legislature in in Missouri. What What's going on this week? What can we look forward to? Oh, wonderful fighting, hate, and discontent. Uh, you know, it'll be whose ego was bruised, who's pre- what right-winger's precious baby feelings were injured, and uh, I'm sure they'll tell us all about it. The House will probably pass thousands of bills, mostly do with guns and abortion, probably something to make sure gay people don't smile. Uh, no one will care except the media to make fun of them. The Senate will fight and hate each other. There will be a Senate hearing this week on this landfill. Uh it's an interesting concept. There's a, in, in Jackson County, so folks are trying to put in a landfill, and oddly enough, they went through the laws in Missouri on a landfill are very lengthy and, and just take forever. But this group has put through all the laws. Now, some folks that, that live around where the landfill will go want to come in and change the law again um, and, and try to block them. So there'll be a hearing on that. It's, it's interesting. These right wingers, they have all these rules about, uh, all these things about liberty and freedom, except you can't sell your property to China, Venezuela, Russia. Now you can't sell it to build a landfill. I tell you, it's going to take, uh, you have to get an index card so the government can tell you who you can sell your land to for a long. Scott, I want to liberty, right? You know, Scott, I want to push back a little bit on, on that. I understand what you're coming from, but that landfill is so controversial. So controversial that you've got Emmanuel Cleaver and Mark Mark Alford, who 
don't agree on almost anything that are in agreement. Um, but is is that landfill potentially could that play a role in the state senate race out there between Hawks and and uh, some of the others out there? Is that going to be an issue? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, the, the truth is, while Republicans say they're for property rights, well, except in these seven thousand cases where they're not for property rights. And I, and the truth is Rick Bratton has tried to pass a law, basically a law to block this landfill, a state law, basically turn the state legislature into planning and zoning for the state. Mike Kastner and Dan Hounds are in the house. Well, you can pass a bill through the house rather easily. And they have that would block this landfill. Rick Bratton, you know, it's one of those things in the state Senate. You can either be the type of Senator that passes legislation or kills legislation. Well, Rick doesn't pass a lot of legislation. And so he went, Right. It was funny. The last year he threw a huge fit that nobody could, uh, the Senate could not move forward until there was something done to block this landfill. So they put something in the budget that would slow it down and the governor vetoed it. Well, now Senator Bratton, it's just funny. He won't sign letters to let his constituents be placed on boards and commissions, which again, it doesn't hurt the rest of the state. It just hurts his constituents. Uh, now you're, he, he wants the governor to put this back in his actual budget, which I doubt the governor is going to get Shanghai into doing. So we'll see. Uh, and then I, I think you'll see Mike Sirpois came in, a senator that does pass a lot of legislation and has tried to take over from him. But if you recall, the first inquiry of session was Senator Shore and Senator Bratton talking about their new and improved conservative caucus. And they were saying this isn't going to be here just to tick people off and kill things, but they pretty much talked about how they couldn't stand anybody and all the things they wanted to kill. So if I had to guess, the landfill's best friend is Senator Rick Bratton. Mm-hmm. Missouri Times publisher Scott Fawn joins us on Wake Up Mid-Missouri on a very, very chilly Mid-Missouri and all of Missouri morning. It sounds like it's that way in Jefferson City as well, John. You betcha. Scott, is there anybody in the state Senate who isn't considering running for Blaine Lutkemeyer's uh, congressional seat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, probably not, no. I, I, I would say Jill Carter down in Joplin. She may be the only one that's officially said she's not running. Uh, it, it, it is a. Uh, it will be quite contentious. You know, as time goes on, I think everybody's assumed Bob Onder would run, and I, and I still do, the former senator from St. Charles. I assume he will. If he doesn't, I almost would be confident Nick Shore would run the man that replaced him in the state Senate. And that'll put an interesting thing. I mean, I, I, you know, when you look at the, the, the Missouri Mapper, a Twitter account, did some, this great job on publishing maps. And they kind of broke this race down as you have the St. Louis folks from St. Charles, a little sliver of Jefferson County down in the extreme uh, southwest uh, part of it, but really it versus the rest of the district. And if you're from Mocaine, I mean, look, the fact is, do you want a congressman from St. Louis? Do you believe in St. Louis and will care about anyone in Ashland? And if you do, I have some wonderful oceanfront property for you down in West Butler County. You'll, you'll love it. Does uh, Well, Bob Onder will be joining us at 835. He's uh, on the ground in Iowa, and maybe we can ask him about that. Uh, but does this improve, uh, Holly, if, if he switches from lieutenant governor to the CD3 race, does this raise the prospects of Holly Rader being our next lieutenant governor? I think it does. Uh, look, I, I think uh, when it was Holly Rader versus Dean Plocker, I would have gave Holly Rader, you know, 
a, a marginal advantage coming out of the gate on that. Holly Rader's a terrific politician. She has, she's proven she can raise money. Uh, the Speaker Plocker, you know, when you're Speaker, you can raise money, but he, he lost some of that time to raise money with some of the scandals and whatever. I have no idea if he plans on still filing, but let's assume he was. When Bob Onder jumped in, that was two men versus one woman, and Bob Onder will be an excellent primary candidate. Bob, Bob Onder has... He's got that record of voting against everything that Republican primary voters love. Uh, Bob is an outstanding primary candidate, I think better than than Speaker Plocker. So if he were to drop out, I I think it greatly enhances Holly Rader's chances, unless you see the world shift a little bit and someone like Lincoln Huff jumps in, who would be also a very good, strong primary candidate. He could raise that $2 million that it would take to really probably cement yourself as the leader in the race. I I, uh, I think Bob Onder running for Congress, there couldn't be a better scenario for Senator Raider to become lieutenant governor. Now, if he jumps in, we also heard uh, on our program last week that Senator Fitzwater is considering um, a run. Um, I think you mentioned on your show, Senator Luke DeMeyer. We've also heard... Um, uh, there, who else is in the race? Um, Mary, oh, Mary, Mary, yeah, Elizabeth Mary Elizabeth Coleman. is in the race um, officially. So there are a lot of names swirling out there. I guess in your mind, you know, do you think it's going to be someone from Mid Missouri or from the St. Louis area after seeing those maps from uh, Missouri Mapper? Uh, I well, there's two things. I mean, uh, I'll just tell you: if folks in Mid Missouri vote for St. Louis and we deserve the government we get, or in this case, don't get. Um, it'll be us doing it to ourselves. There'll be no one else to blame but us. Uh, I, I think rural folks are nice, and we'll vote for someone that doesn't know the difference between a herbicide and a pesticide. And if we could find an 11th toe, we'd shoot that one off too. So if Travis Fitzwater runs, I think he's the best candidate to have a mid-Missouri congressman that actually will know where Hartsburg is. Uh, if it's not him, I think Taylor Burks. Uh, I've heard, you know, the Eagles' own Jennifer Bukowski, who I think, if she does this, I just want to follow her campaign around. I'd like to volunteer to be the roving, you know, reporter that covers the Bukowski campaign. (laughs) I think that'd be hilarious and awesome. Um, But, look, I I think it depends on the quality of candidates Central Missouri can field. And then you're going to have at least two, maybe three from St. Louis. And, you know, again, it just comes back to, if you're in Montgomery City and you vote for a congressman in St. Louis that thinks that you actually believe knows where Montgomery City is, well, you're a fool and you deserve what you get. Do you think there's any chance, Scott, I know you referenced it, if Schroer gets in, I mean, keep in mind though, that that's a GOP stronghold St. Charles County. Those folks get out and vote. They have a lot of votes. That's that's probably the most populous well, county. Does Could Schroer, if he gets in, could he win that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, Cinder Coleman is a talented politician. Jeff County is about 8% of the district. Um, St. Charles County people, though, are transient. You know, most of them aren't from there. So they might be willing to elect somebody that's not from the district. I, I We make fun of them for a reason. They are goofy. So that's I think it's totally possible. Uh, Nick Shore would do a great job. You know, I think Bob Onder's probably a more polished and practiced candidate. Plus, he's got his brother who is um, who could easily fund a congressional race and not miss the money. Uh, I, I think Bob Onder starts off as the favorite just because of that money. If he doesn't, Nick Nick probably starts off as a marginal favorite. But look, guys, I mean, let's you know sometimes we always. Uh, 
we don't always appreciate our own. Travis Fitzwater would be an excellent member of Congress. He would actually care. He's been creative. He has he has ID, comes up with ideas on workforce development and things that actually matter to folks. Travis would be an outstanding member of Congress and would actually, you know, be able to find Wardsville on a map two years from now. On the other hand, though, Scott, I mean, isn't it fair to say that many of the people listening to this program have shared values with those people in St. Charles who would support an Onder or a Schroer, just in terms of the big picture on a federal level? I mean, if you're mad, yeah. I mean, our, our friends in the suburbs, they drive those little electric vehicles while they drink their Starbucks, and they drive around typing on Facebook how mad they are. And if that's your values, you should be a St. Louisan. I would encourage you to move over there. Get you a nice <laughs> mask you can wear and dodge bullets. Well, I was a St. Louisan. I know those people very, very well. And I think they, yeah. they actually share many of the limited government, stay out of my life, sort of libertarian, conservatarian values. So from a federal uh, congressional standpoint, I don't know that that's really at odds with, with the values of people that I know here in mid Missouri that share those same, you know, don't tread on me values. Well, I mean, I think you're going to see the members of Congress and the Republican delegation all vote together 95% of the time. Uh, I mean, if you want a Matt Gates, well, yeah, you should get you a St. Louis. And, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that if you want folks that will care about ag, you want folks that will care about uh, changing the tri-level here in Jeff City and, re- and redoing that, you want somebody that will actually help you finish the job on I-70, I don't think you if you if you need somebody to complain, you call St. Louis. Yep. You want somebody to get something done, I'd call an old boy like Travis Fitzwater. Right. That's and, just me. I'm just a simple no, and the big, no, you're right. I, there's nothing wrong with that. The, the question is, can they win in a general in Missouri? You know, and, and well, I mean, there won't be a general election in this. It'll be whoever wins his primary. Name recognition and money. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I mean, it, the, the Republican will win, just like Emmanuel Cleaver. If he wins a primary, will be the will right. be the congressman in Kansas City. Right. It'll just come down to you know what does Central Missouri want? If you want to complain. There's candidates for that. If you want to get something done, there could be candidates for that. Yeah. All right. Well, it's going to be interesting to see as the field widens and expands. It's also interesting, isn't it? How No one had anything negative to say about Blaine Lutkemeyer on his retirement, including Bob Onder. Very, very complimentary. Gary Nolan. <laughs> Except for Gary Nolan. But I mean the people potentially running. Blaine Lutkemeyer has been a tremendous statesman, an outstanding member of Congress. Yes. He's got those central Missouri good horse sense of values. When I think of Missouri and I think of common sense, I think of Blaine Lutkemeyer. I do, too. Uh, the man, man served this state tremendously. If you care about the University of Missouri, he has delivered for the University of Missouri. He has voted with, with the Republican caucus. I mean, yeah, again, if you want Matt Gates, somebody to go out creeping around dating 16-year-olds, Blaine Lutkemeyer is not your guy. If you want a good central Missouri, a common sense guy, Blaine Luptemeyer deserves a statue somewhere. He has served this state incredibly well. Well, he took a lot of hits and barbs and had to wear that flap jacket against the rhino, uh, you know, accusations. But I think uh, you're right in terms of getting things done for mid-Missouri and for rural Missouri. He did a great job. Scott, we're out of time, or else I'm going to get in trouble by not uh, allowing Hannah her due time on her, you know. And if I do that, you're already you don't know what's happening. I'm sorry. Scott, look forward to talking to you next week, brother. Talk to you all later. Have a good week. All right. There he is, Scott Vaughn. Coming up, what's hot with Hannah at 720. Five-ish. <laughs> this is Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Text the crew at 874-9390. Warning, everyone on the show can read your texts.
Time for what's hot with Hannah on this there, very chilly Monday, go. and it's my clock says seven twenty-five. What about yours, Hannah? Uh, mine says that it's almost seven twenty-eight. Oh, gee, okay, and it's all right. Stephanie likes to blame it on Scott Fawn on Mondays, so definitely cut me, cut me some slack here. Cut me <laughs> some slack. Stephanie actually sent me today's what's hot with Hannah story last <laughs> night, and it made me almost throw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, I, as a true Midwestern, am. Uh, I'm a big fan of ranch dressing, right? Oh, it's are like, you? It's like a Midwest stereotype. We're, we like our ranch dressing. And last year, we saw a Hidden Valley Ranch do some weird collaborations. Like, there was an ice cream that was made. Um, there's all sorts all sorts of, like, clothing items with the Hidden Valley, like, logo on it that went that. that were popular last year. Huh. Um, but I think we've gone too far now. Why is that? Burt's Bees. Oh, pretty well known for their chapstick is the first thing i think of yeah it's one of my favorites uh they did a collaboration with hidden valley ranch (laughs) (laughs) and the the four flavors that they came out with were are they flavors or scents oh that's that's a good (laughs) point (laughs) uh the four that they came out with were fresh carrot hidden valley ranch of course buffalo sauce and crunchy celery. In Burt's Bees lipstick products? Like chapstick? chapstick. Yeah, lip balm. They do other things, but they, they base it on like honeycomb wax. Yeah, on beeswax. Yeah, but like when you always wanted like a sugar cookie, like lip gloss, so you smelled good. But can you imagine like you get too close to somebody and they've got buffalo, <laughs> buffalo chapstick? John, John, John just texted me. He's really disappointed that he couldn't get a honey coated sugar cinnamon spice <laughs> lip gloss. Right, John? I'm going to go get one right now. All right. Hidden Valley. <laughs> when we come back, we're going to ask the question. Oh, no, we're going to talk with Kurt Jefferson about international security, our involvement in the Ukraine and Israel-Gaza in Yemen. Houthis retaliated over... The news can be heavy. So can a boulder. This is Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Welcome back to the program, 736 on Wake Up Mid-Missouri. I'm Randy Tober, along with Stephanie Bell, excited over Iowa. Yes. John Marsh, excited over the goings-on in Jefferson City. I think I'm more excited about Iowa. (laughs) And producer Hannah, who's trying to make it through her concrete-ish kind of oatmeal. I can't believe what you were trying to eat this morning. Yeah, we'll have to hit that later. Kurt Jefferson joins us now, former uh, Westminster College faculty, a uh, uh, legendary in the minds of students there, and an expert in international security matters, political scientist extraordinaire. Now at Spalding University. How you doing, Kurt? Hey, I'm doing good, Randy. Good to be with you and Stephanie today. Thank you for joining us. And uh, you are editor of a book on contextualizing uh, security matters internationally. And I wanted to, I wanted to discuss with you sort of the the foreign entanglements, and I mean that in the broadest sense of the word. Um, you know, funding Ukraine now, you know, for how many months and years? Uh, this is the 
100th day after October 7th, the 100th day anniversary of the October 7th uh, massacre in Israel. Uh, that conflict's going on. And, of course, the Yemeni thing with the U.S. and U.K., you know, attacking Yemeni outposts uh, last, or, or at the end of the week. Some retaliation overnight. It seems like uh, Biden has got himself into a bunch of different... Um, one way or another, battles, whether it's kinetic or whether it's uh, material and, and monetary support. It's a, it's a different world than what I think most of us saw and experienced under Donald Trump. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's a mess. Um, I, I I think you've summarized it well. Um, we've got uh, a lot of challenges facing the United States. Um you know, I, I think when I when I look at this, I see obviously this is without saying weak leadership from Washington, uh, and, and in many ways has helped contribute and caused a lot of this. I think uh, supply chain issues that the Houthis now, the Red Sea, you're talking about forty percent to sixty percent of the world's oil going around the Horn of Africa there, and now they can sit and take pot shots. Uh, and that, you know, one thing a lot of people don't understand is that it goes back to a, a, a long-standing 50-year-plus civil war in Yemen uh, that was a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians. And, and now we're dragged into that. And then um, the other thing I was going to tell you and Stephanie, Randy, is that we, we have something like 33 to 45 active hot wars in the world today. So even though... We normally have 25, 30. Um, it, th- those numbers are ramping up. And I heard a great metaphor the other day that, you know, the kind of period we're living in is a lot like prior to World War II and the Japanese invading Manchuria in 1931, taking on the Chinese in 1937. All these little micro wars might end up running together at some point in, com- in combining for one big conflagration. So, yeah, it's not good. And um, it, what makes it even worse is uh, the the difficult situation with um, virtually no leadership from the nation's capital, in my opinion. Kurt, with your many years at Westminster, heck, 20 or so in the Churchill Institute that you were uh instrumental in starting up there we see so many of the national news stories now about especially students in the ivy league protesting pro-palestinian and all that are they getting it on the world situation and obviously you would hope college kids would be the cream of the crop on paying attention to this stuff yeah it's a good question i i think um you know because university education has gone from you know, empirical, factual, looking at history. Also, I think even within the parties, there were strong divides on, on you know, isolation, uh, isolationist foreign policy versus global, globalist foreign policy. And clearly, um, even though I'm taking a pot shot at, at the president, there are folks within uh, his side of the house that are, that are very pro-Israel and trying to hold the, the tide back. But um, certainly uh, something has transpired that has led toward, um, you know, kind of a a demonization of of one side or one approach versus another. And and if you want to just talk pure politics on the university campus, I'm an academic dean. You know, we had at one point in the 1970s, I think, for every liberal on the campus, there were three to two conservatives. And now in most disciplines, it's, it's well over 100 to one in, in many disciplines. So uh, liberals to conservatives. So I think we there's there's definitely a call for a reset. I hope 
watching what's transpired with this anti-Semitism on the campuses is, is a wake-up shot call to most of America, including uh, the old liberals who are were always battling progressives on the campuses um, in, in terms of ideological things, etc. So I'm hoping we'll get a reset and, and a little more balance um, back in the academy to, to that point, which is a good one. And Kurt, it's it's just amazing as you watch the landscape of the protest and how these people who claim to be against the violence in Gaza and Israel needs to stand down, um, we see protesters uh, vandalizing the security fence around the White House over the weekend. House Republicans are planning to press federal agencies to punish workers who threaten to walk out, including some of those in the White House uh, on Biden's stance in support of Israel. Um, so there's political calculus here uh, that, that is weighing probably increasingly heavily on, on Biden and the Democrats' campaign. Um, and then we see South Africa on the international level uh, pressure to bear on support for Israel, uh, you know, claiming uh, turning them into the world uh, court on, uh, you know, on, on genocide. It's uh, there's a lot of pushback against Israel's action against Hamas. Yeah, I think those are all great points, Randy. I. I am one, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, taught international law for quite a few years there at West Mo, and, and I'm a little surprised Israel even decided to take on the case at The Hague. Um, I know Stephanie's an attorney, and she may want to weigh in, but the reality is I think that was more of a PR move by the Israelis. But by the same token, to your point, here's a nation that was invaded on October 7th, 1200 of their citizens were murdered, 30-some-odd Americans were murdered or, or taken hostage. And um, now, here's Israel in the dock for for genocide. Um, it, it makes absolutely no sense. It's just another example of anti-Semitism. And, um, you know, there's no doubt that, that uh, Israel's methods at times are a little bit overbearing. Uh, everybody admits that, but they also see... When you have a, 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 a terrorist organization that has literally built an armed camp putting uh, weapons and munitions and, and missiles under mosques, under schools, under preschools, under houses, they put their own citizens' lives at risk. And uh, I don't see any other way at this point other than the military of Israel to go in and uproot the entire Hamas operation before getting it back to a more pastoral, stable Palestine. So zooming out just a little bit, I was looking at the topics covered in your book, Contextualizing Security, and it looks like you cover a wide array of security issues. But being kind of someone who's who's an expert in that field and studies that field, what keeps you up at night personally? Uh, you know, what do you think is the biggest threat to our nation's security? Well, I, my biggest concern, Stephanie, that's a good question, is, uh, and one we didn't really deal with very much in that book, um, is nuclear. Uh, I get very concerned because, one, we all know that if Iran, indeed, who's working toward an active nuclear program, North Korea has an active nuclear program, uh, even when you hear American presidents say they're threatening, as Eisenhower had done in the 50s, even Trump did, um, to use the nuclear threat, even in a limited sense, that's when uh, you start to see, um, in my mind, alarm bells go off. We need to be concerned. And I think 
Um, when you have a war like the one in Russia and Ukraine going on, and you have Russia as the number two nuclear power in the world, and Putin backed into a corner threatening to use nukes, that's, that's what keeps me up at night. I think a lot of people think, well, we're in the United States. Yeah, um, ICBMs might be able to get to the West Coast or something. But I'm thinking more of the regional. If China and India were to get into a nuclear war, if India and Pakistan, India and Pakistan, Islamabad to Delhi is uh, Columbia to St. Louis is 120 miles. And they say if a nuclear exchange started between those two countries, 10 million would be dead within a matter of minutes. So that nuclear would be the big one that would be that does keep me up. And I always showed the genesis of our nuclear program to my students um, at Westminster. At Spalding, I teach doctoral courses now, but we still talk about graduate or at the graduate level about the threats that could be existential to a country like the United States. Uh, we're talking with uh, with Kurt Jefferson, uh, who, as you mentioned, John, was uh, really so important in the Churchill uh, organizations and, uh, of course, the Churchill Museum being over at, at Fulton. So I have to ask you the question, Kurt, what would Churchill do, WWC do? Uh, D in, in these times, how if he was if he was leading leading the West and their response to all of the turmoil across from Taiwan to Ukraine to the Middle East, what well, WWCD? I think he would do, and this is where I would uh, give Biden semi props. I wouldn't give him full props on Israel. I think he would do exactly what they're doing. I think he would say, "Keep BB, keep fighting the fight." Try not to kill uh, or, or, or injure uh, civilians. I do think he would take a totally different tack in, in um, Ukraine. I think he would have settled this a long time ago and said, let's get back to the status quo antebellum. Russia is a superpower, We're, or at least militarily in their own sphere of influence. They're not necessarily superpower vis-a-vis the United States. Um, and as I've said before, Randy, talking with you, their economy is the size of the state of Florida, but it is 14 times bigger than Ukraine's economy. He would say, get to the bargaining table, let Russia have uh, the uh, eastern half of Ukraine and get back to where we were prior to the war and end this thing, 200,000 died. And then with China, I think he would um, be willing to talk tough, but continue to say, you stay out in East Asia and, and have your sphere of influence, we'll have our sphere of influence in, in the Western Europe. And as we look ahead to this election season, Kurt, I mean, we have we have various stances on our involvement in various ways uh, overseas related to the to the various conflicts you've mentioned. Uh, some are more in the isolationist camp, Vivek Ramaswamy probably leading the charge there. Um, others more uh, Nikki Haley being accused of being a rhino and a neocon. Um, what's the right calibration there? Not so much from a political sense, but there are a lot of people, of course, that support, you know, the, the, the Republican movement, but are they're very, very staid on their concern about our involvement almost anywhere. What what should America's role be? Big brother, uh, cop on the street, or just uh, withdraw and wait for the missiles to come across the New York Harbor? Well, I personally, I don't think it's the latter. I, I wouldn't support, uh, you know, a 1930s Taft uh, of Ohio isolationism. I think that will lead to issues. On the other hand, I think, um, you know, the, the Teddy Roosevelt approach uh, that speaks softly, carry the big stick, hold back. 
don't get too caught up in foreign entanglements. That was kind of our foreign policy for 100 years at the beginning of the republic in the 19th century. We weren't too engaged in the world, but we were engaged enough to have diplomatic relationships. Um, But uh, I do think uh, when you look at what Donald Trump was attempting to do uh, with regard to foreign policy, he was he was talking tough. He was willing to back it up. Uh, but yet not be too much engaged into a point of of uh, spending too much of the GDP on on defense and foreign policy. So I think it's 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 not it's Reagan light to a certain extent, but it's not completely uh, you know in, yeah. you know something that says we're going to have a step up uh, globalism. Um, and I think you also have to be willing to challenge the global institutions slightly, given what we're watching, the treatment of Israel. I mean, I think Israel's a strong ally in the Middle East. I know, uh, you know, there is, to John's question, there's a lot of backlash even in our own country, saying, why do we put all this money into Israel, etc.? But we also work with Israel for a lot of other reasons, not just yeah. diplomatically, but militarily and yeah. security-wise. And scientifically as well. They are, they are among the leaders in scientific and healthcare advancement, too. Kurt Jefferson, Absolutely. co-editor, along with your former colleague at Westminster, Tobias Gibson, of Contextualizing Security, a reader, which is a fabulous read for those of you who really want to understand these matters in all of their full glory. Thanks for being with me, my friend. We look forward to talking to you more in the future as things unfold. Thank you so much. Great being with you all. All the best to my friends and folks in uh, mid-Missouri. <laughs> all right. And stay uh, stay cool down there in, in Kentucky. All right. When we come back, uh, John Marsh, what you got for us? The world's crazy enough. You got more craziness coming up? It's so cold that... Okay. We'll have to find out what that means after this on Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Good morning. You'll take my life, but I'll take yours too. This is Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Telling you what you want to hear since 2015. This is Wake Up Mid-Missouri. And that would be all. Except for this. Started off the morning with it's colder than euphemisms for cold weather, which is boobies and brass monkeys notwithstanding. <laughs> about it's colder than a well digger's butt. Yeah, that's a good one. Colder than a gold digger's heart. Oh. Colder than a brass toilet seat on the shady side of an iceberg. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) So cold, so cold the dogs are sticking to the fire hydrants. (laughs) It was so cold I chipped my tooth on my soup. (laughs) It was so cold even property taxes were frozen. (laughs) It was so cold grandpa's teeth were chattering in the glass on the counter And this one attributed, but not positively, to George W. Bush. It's so cold, Bill is actually sleeping with Hillary. Ooh. You know the rest of that story. Oh, wow. Hey, that's that's the ultimate compendium of It's So Cold That. Isn't it great? I saw some really amazing uh, pictures this weekend of weird beyond the beers like exploding freezing at the chiefs game like people with like ramen and and stuff <laughs> yes. outside that was totally frozen with like noodles and a spoon in the air did you see that one yeah so i mean everyone has seen videos of folks throwing boiling water in the air and it instantly freezing <laughs> uh, you can find t- an old one on the kws.com site yeah this one took it a step further and they had a bowl of ramen noodles 
and they twirled some noodles around their fork and lifted it up in the air and held it for a few seconds, and it stayed there when they let go of the fork. That's crazy. If Hunter did that, he could call it modern art and get about $500,000 for one of those sculptures. Certainly. (laughs) One of our favorite things to do, and we didn't manage to do it this weekend, and we should have, you can put water in balloons and put like a couple drops of food coloring and throw them out and they freeze. And then you rip the balloons off and they're like colored gemstones, almost like colored frozen balls of ice. The kids think it's awesome. Little orbs of beautiful color, like like uh, gazing balls in the middle of the winter, right? They're fun. All right. And don't forget, Bob Onder comes up. uh, He's on the ground in Iowa at uh, 8.35. And when we come up, we'll ask, how much caffeine is too much? Stay tuned on on. Wake Up 